Hello, and welcome to PW's LitCast, the podcast from Publishers Weekly. In each episode, we speak with authors writing in a range of areas. I'm Lenny Picker of Publishers Weekly, and today I'm speaking with Tanya Israel, the author of Beyond Your Bubble, How to Connect Across the Political Divide, published by the American Psychological Association, the sponsor of today's podcast. Good afternoon, Tanya. Good afternoon. Would you start us off by reading just a brief excerpt, please? Sure. Keeping in mind common motivations for engaging in dialogue, what do you think might help maintain relationships, understand different views, find common ground, persuade, and reduce distress? You might want to explain why you're right. You might want to cite research. You might want to point out logical inconsistencies. You might want to walk away. You might want to tell them that they're idiots. You can react any number of ways. However, these actions are not going to help you to reach your goals. They're not going to achieve the ends you've identified as your motivations for engaging in dialogue. For successful dialogue across political lines, it turns out that there are only two things you need to do. One, try to understand people on the other side, and two, help them feel safe and understood. That's it. Why do you need to understand them? I often hear people who are mystified by people on the other side. If desire to understand is in itself a motive for you to engage in dialogue, it can be met by developing greater insight into others with differing views. Understanding people who are different from you will also help you accomplish other goals. If you want to find common ground, you will need to understand them as well as yourself and look for commonalities. If you want to persuade, you will need to understand their beliefs and values to be effective in shifting their views. And if you simply want to reduce your distress, I find that some of the distress people are experiencing arises from being mystified about others' views and in the uncertainty about how others will act. Insight into others can alleviate some of this distress. Why do you need to help them feel safe and understood? Quite simply, the safer and more understood people feel, the more they will be open to engaging in dialogue. When people feel confronted or attacked, they shut down and become even more committed to polarized views. When they feel safe and understood, they are less defensive, less agitated, more willing to express their views, and more likely to listen to yours. They will be more willing partners in seeking common ground and less resistant to opening their minds to alternative ways of thinking. Thank you, Tanya. And could you put that section in the broader context of the book? Absolutely. I start out the book asking people to reflect on their motivations for engaging in dialogue across political lines. And then I, this is sort of the bridge then to say, okay, well, if those are your motivations, what do you actually need to do? And then after this, the rest of the book really builds skills to help people um, to be able to understand people on the other side and to help people feel safe and understood. So it goes into listening, how to manage emotions, 
um, some things about how to actually understand other people, and also how do you effectively share your own views? Thank you, because it seems to me that this is a book that uh, could not be more timely with the polarization, at least in the United States, manifesting itself in, you know, at a time when many people are, are to a certain extent, in physical bubbles as well as uh, metaphorical ones. But, you know, issues of public health are, are have become extremely polarized as well. So uh, I'll sort of get to some of your thoughts on the current reality in a little bit. But can you talk about the origins of the book for a few moments? Absolutely. After the 2016 election, it was pretty clear that our country was polarized. But it was also clear that it was affecting people in various ways. It was affecting people's relationships with family members, with coworkers, um, and it's actually also affecting our health. And so I'm a psychologist. I've done work being engaged in community and politics, but I also teach about helping skills. And I saw ways that some of the things that I knew might be useful to this, uh, to, to helping people with the struggles that they were having. I, I've also facilitated difficult dialogues around sexual orientation, around law enforcement, around religion. So, so I felt like there are some skills that can actually help people to do this. And maybe I'm in a position to provide some of those skills. So I, I started by developing uh, something that I sort of jokingly called the flow chart that will resolve all political conflict in our country, because I'm very optimistic. Um, and it then seemed like maybe we needed more than a flowchart. So I created a two-hour skills building workshop um, to help people to develop these skills. And uh, several hundred people went through that workshop, and people were asking for more resources. So that's how the book came about. I decided to write this book and help people. Um, you know, there, there were books out there at the time that I was seeing that said, we need to have dialogue, we need to be able to uh, reach out across the divide. But I wasn't finding anything that said, this is concretely how to do it. And if you were starting, someone coming in and talking to you and saying, you know, I really want to learn how to do this, what would you say is the first step? I mean, would it be learning how to be a better listener? I would say even before the skill of listening, the motivation is important. Uh, recognizing why you want to do it so that you can really have that motivation to sustain you. And hopefully, whatever motivation you have will lead to some curiosity about the other person and about what they think and where their beliefs come from and, and wanting to know something more in depth. And I think that that's actually a very important foundation um, for listening, to actually want to hear. And I guess the question then becomes want to hear um, and want to communicate for what end goal. And, and I, if I'm not being clear, I'll try to take myself as an example. And let's say I'm talking to, to a, a parent in my community who either because he or she has been an anti-vaxxer for years or has you know, recently become nervous about what he or she has read in the press, is talking, whether in actual human conversation or online, about maybe not uh, having their family inoculated uh, when, God willing, is a, a COVID vaccine. So it would seem to me, and you're, 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 the, you're the professional psychologist, not me, 
my motivation is not some laudatory, you know, sort of idyllic, you know, knowledge for knowledge sake, exchange of ideas. I want to understand her so that I can be in a position to try to have her listen to my point of view to get her to change her mind. Mm -hmm. So am I approaching it the wrong way? I mean, it, it just seems to me that that's the, that would be the honest take about why I'd be engaging in that process in that hypothetical situation. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, that's one of the, one of the big motivations that I hear is I, I want to convince people on the other side to think the way that I do. And in order to actually persuade other people, you, you really need to know where they're coming from and why they hold the beliefs that they do. Uh, what are the experiences that they've had? What are the values that they have? And so this is some of what I address in the book in terms of like, how do you actually understand that other person, both in terms of listening, but also are there other things that we know about the values and motives of people on different sides of political issues. And it, and it turns out we do know some things about that that can help to inform us. One of the most interesting things that I learned while doing research for this book is that typically we overestimate the distance between our own and other people's views. And so when we're imagining having that conversation, Sometimes we, we can't imagine that there's anything that we have in common or any overlap there. Or we think, you know, if we think that we're going to be talking to somebody, you know, let's say we're on the left and we're going to talk to somebody on the right about race, we think, well, they're, they're going to be um, a white supremacist or a neo-Nazi. And, and most people are not white supremacists and neo-Nazis. And, um, but that's what we see represented in the media sometimes. So we're thinking about people very on a very extreme end. And the way to know more about where somebody is truly coming from, you know, aside from those ideas we have in our head, is really to listen and to want to know more, not just to want to know that they're an anti-vaxxer, but, well, what does that mean to them? How have they come to that view? And how do they see that working also? So asking more questions and really listening is, is a very good start, even if your end goal is persuasion. And to what extent do you think that teaching these kind of um, listening skills in early grades in school would, in the long run, be helpful? I mean, there's been a lot of discussion about how, you know, a civics curriculum, which can be done in a nonpartisan way, but which includes, you know, the, you know, the right to, to free speech and to express opinion, to what extent has the elimination of things like that from many schools curriculum played a part in people not developing the sort of listening skills that you feel are needed? Well, I, th I think it's a good question to think about what kind of curricula we're, we're providing for kids. And I, and I do think that, you know, civics is really important. It's important to know how to engage in our government. It's a government that, you know, um, I think we can all participate in in various ways. I, I think even more than that is something about learning how to actually relate to other people. And it's actually very encouraging a lot of the work that's going on in the schools around this, around developing some of the skills for listening, for conflict resolution. And the, these are things that are going to be helpful for 
success no matter what somebody's doing in their lives. I, I think probably one of the most important things we need to do for children is to model this as adults. And I don't think we're doing a particularly good job of that um, very often. And the, the other thing I think that's affected us quite a bit is social media. Um, because in social media, people are more often sort of communicating out. And it's not so much about you know, listening and trying to truly understand where somebody else is coming from. I was going to ask you about social media because I tend to be skeptical sort of in general for sort of rosy views of the past and saying that, you know, 50 or 100 or 200 years ago, Americans or people in general were more moral or more connected um, because I, I'm, I'm just sort of skeptical of that. But it does seem to be that the one major difference is the impact of social media and sort of people being online almost continuously, which leads to, you know, what people have called, you know, continuous partial attention. So, which seems to be the antithesis of, of listening. If it is sort of, you know, the news is going on in the background and you're on your device doing something, you know, one or two other things at the same time, you're going to absorb very little. Um, and I guess with the genie being out of the bottle, I'm wondering what sort of advice you would give in terms of trying to, you know, counter the effects of social media that work against listening appropriately. Sure. And, and you're talking about something with, you know, social media or whatever's going on on our phones that, that we sometimes are attending to rather than attending to the people who are actually with us. Um, but there's something else more specific about social media. Um, and some of that, when, when we think about having conversations with people, if we're actually having a one-on-one -on -one conversation, that might look very different if we're talking to somebody we agree with versus somebody we disagree with. With somebody agree, we agree with, we might just be able to kind of use shorthand slogans and, you know, and, and we basically feel like we understand each other and can support each other. And, and so it's, it's, it feels easy in that way. If we then try to have that same conversation with somebody who comes from a very different perspective and doesn't understand what we mean by whatever label we're going to use to identify our own views, if we're pro-choice or pro-life or, or even Democrat or Republican, that's going to mean to us a very specific thing. And, and so if we, if we just try to uh, sort of shift and have that same conversation with somebody who disagrees with us, they're going to be, you know, putting their understanding understanding of of those terms of those slogans onto us and we really need to explain a little bit more about what we mean by things and where we're coming from in order to have a shared understanding, which comes more easily with people who already agree with us. But on social media, we're just saying the same thing to everyone. And so, and we're more often using those sort of slogans and, and, uh, you know, briefer ways of communicating. And that doesn't really promote understanding. There, there's a study that I talk about in the book that was done on Twitter where, um, they sent conservative tweets to liberal people and liberal tweets to conservative people. And rather than actually uh, helping people understand more and opening up their minds, it actually pushed 
uh, people farther apart. Um, it made them more extreme in their views. And so if we think that, you know, commenting on somebody's Facebook post and giving them this, this information or these arguments that we think will persuade them is actually going to make a difference, it might make a difference, but maybe not in the direction that we hope. And I'm wondering if there are any parallels between sort of implementing the sort of techniques and developing the skills that you talk about and the techniques that are sometimes used in couples therapy of listening and sort of mirroring what the partner is saying. Because when you talk about, you know, people you agree with and sort of modeling it for children, it just sort of made me think that, you know, for many children, the adults they see most often are their parents and they see how their parents interact and how their parents listen. And so it's sort of a roundabout way of sort of asking whether as a sort of preliminary step towards engaging with someone who, you know, has uh, diametrically opposed political views, just sort of building up those listening muscles in a different context might be helpful. So this is a spoiler uh, for the very end of the book. But the final thing that I say in the book is that uh, even if you don't care at all about dialogue across political lines, these skills are going to be helpful to you in your life. They're going to make you a better parent. They're going to make you a better partner. They'll make you a better coworker and member of your community. So absolutely, these are very much the same skills that, that we would use in, like you said, in a couples therapy context. Some of these are also the same skills that therapists both use or teach to their clients. Um, th therapists definitely use the listening skills that I've described here, but also things like managing emotions. That's something that we often try to help clients to learn uh, to be able to manage, um, you know, that fight, flight, or fear response that comes up when we're feeling a threat. And so I would say that, that the skills in this book are widely applicable. And in an early part of the book, you talk about an experience you had uh, a little while ago with an organization called Common Ground, where it was an effort to get people who are pro-life and pro-choice to start to have a dialogue. I'm wondering, uh, and I don't remember exactly uh, what year that took place in, but from your perspective today, is that something that you would approach differently uh, with the vantage point of sort of time and more experience? So thanks for bringing that up. That was an experience that I had back in the 90s. And I was uh, living in Charlottesville, Virginia, which is where I'm from, and uh, started a group to bring together pro-choice and pro-life people to have dialogue with each other. And and we used some of these same things. You know, we, we tried to listen to each other and tried to understand. And I found it to be an absolutely transformational experience. It didn't change anything about how I felt about women's reproductive freedom, but it changed so much about how I felt about people who disagreed with me on that. And would I do anything different now? I, I don't think I would. I, I, I think maybe one-on-one -on -one conversations more than a group experience, although it worked well in a group experience for us to do it. The main thing was that it was people who wanted to be in those conversations. Certainly not everyone who's pro-choice or pro-life wants to have a conversation with people on the other side. But for people who did, I think it helped to deepen our understanding of why somebody else might hold a different view that, and, and, 
that we were able to talk about our views in something more than what you can fit on a bumper sticker, which is um, more often how we are talking about these issues. And they're, they're complex issues. And, and I think we, we didn't necessarily find common ground on abortion, but I think that we found some connection and understanding, which uh, for me, it certainly helped to reduce some of my distress and help me just uh, keep my heart a little bit more open. So um, you referred earlier in our conversation to your being an optimist. And uh, certainly speaking for myself, I could use uh, some intelligent optimism right now. I mean, for a while in conversations with friends, with my family, I'd talk about, you know, a way to find common ground is to perhaps look sort of locally on your your local school board or your block association where, you know, everyone living in a particular neighborhood would have a vested common interest in the streets being safe, the garbage being picked up, et cetera. And I guess for me, my faith has been shaken a little bit because the issue of, of, of responding to the pandemic has, has eroded that. I'm, I'm a New Yorker. I've been taking the subways for the last two months or so. And even in New York, which was so hard hit uh, in, in March and April, not everyone is wearing a mask. Uh, it, and it seems to me, you know, unfairly judging people I don't know, is that at least some of these people are making a deliberate choice of saying, you know what, I don't believe in this, I don't care about this, and I'm just going to do what I'm going to do. So I'm not... Uh, I'm not sure what the appropriate term would be, but I'm not in the position where I'm going to, you know, confront or challenge anyone in the subway for a variety of reasons. But please, uh, maybe you can send us off with with some optimism about conversations across the political divide and how that might play out in terms of, you know, what the polls show of people in red states being less willing to wear masks or socially distanced versus blue states. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's, um, you know, it's interesting, the, the situation that you described, and you said, you know, you're not going to confront or challenge them. And sometimes it feels like those are the only options for having that conversation. Like somebody is doing something, you know, they're not wearing a mask when we think that's absolutely essential to public health. And so if we were going to engage with them, it would be a confrontation or a challenge. What if it's a curious, uh, you know, open, like, I notice you're not wearing a mask. I'm just really curious about that. Like, what if we just wanted to understand more? And I think wanting to understand more is the first step for whatever our goals are, whatever our motivation is. I, I've been having, I've, this has actually led me to start having some more interesting conversations, even with people who do agree with me on things, you know, who I see as absolutely uh, you know, allied with me in terms of politics, but somebody will say something and I'll say, oh, what do you mean by that? Or or what led you to become an environmentalist? Because I just realized we've never even had like the depth of conversation about about that on our own side, let alone on a different side. So what I'm hoping is that these kinds of conversations can help to bring us to a more complex and nuanced understanding of some of those, you know, we talk about politics, but it's really about our shared world that we have. And how do we navigate that together when we have different wants, different needs, different values sometimes? And I I think that's absolutely possible. And 
I, I think having the right expectations for the outcomes is going to be very helpful too. Well, thank you for, for giving some, uh, some positive uh, perspective on, on what's going on. Uh, the book again is Tanya Israel's Beyond Your Bubble, How to Connect Across the Political Divide, published by the American Psychological Association. Thanks for listening, and please join us again soon for another LitCast.